This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jenny Lawson, a.k.a. The Bloggist, discusses her new book, Furiously Happy. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal calls in from the Frankfurt Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. We've got a couple of new books on the nonfiction list. We do. So we have Ben Carson with his book. It's been getting a lot of press, been getting carried everywhere. A More Perfect Union, What We the People Can Do to Reclaim Our Constitutional Liberties. And that is at number two, being topped only by fellow uh, conservative writer Bill O'Reilly. Then we have on number six, I am happy to see Patty Smith's newest book, M-Train. This follows on her best-selling and critically acclaimed Just Kids. And here, this is a collection of essays where she creates a map of her peripatetic journeys to cafes, cemeteries, hotels, and train stations around the world. So we gave that a starred review. And um, she, again, she's been, uh, her book is getting covered everywhere. And um, uh, she's been giving talks and it's been great. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Patrick Kennedy and Stephen Fried. Patrick Kennedy is a former congressman uh, and the youngest son of Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, have a book called A Common Struggle, A Personal Journey Through the Past and Future of Mental Illness and Addiction. That's at number seven. Now, I want to say at number 15 is a book called Rosemary by Kate Clifford Larson, also about a Kennedy family member. And this is about Rosemary Kennedy, who was the sister of Teddy, JFK, RFK. So two books on the bestseller list on the Kennedy family. And going down just a little bit further at number 19, um, this is going to be a hit for a lot of uh, younger music listeners. Sounds Like Me, My Life So Far in Song by Sarah Bareilles. She's an L.A.-based singer, songwriter. And here we say in this balanced, honest collection of eight essays, each, as she says, anchored by a song. The Grammy-nominated singer Brella shares her story of her life so far, in quotes, beginning with her childhood in Eureka. And she's since gone on to have several hits. And uh, so this will be a big book for a lot of younger listeners. All right. Well, that sounds great. Well, it's a big week in uh, in the fiction world. Lots of interesting debuts. We have a new number one, uh, which is The Survivor. This is Kyle Mills writing in Vince Flynn's thriller series. Um, so it's got Vince Flynn's name really big on the top, but Kyle Mills is the actual author, as happens a lot with these thriller franchises. Um, this one, you know, pretty standard political thriller, um, but it shoots to the top of the list, got a lot of fans, and uh, sold almost 50,000 copies in its first week out. Very respectable. 
And number two is A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, this is a collection of three short stories that tie into George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire universe, better known to television fans as Game of Thrones. Ah, and right. uh, these three stories appeared in different anthologies over time. They've also uh, had some graphic adaptations, and here they're finally brought together for people who don't feel like buying all of those anthologies just to get one George Martin story. And uh, they're also beautifully illustrated by Gary Gianni, who's um, done a lot of other work in the Song of Ice and Fire universe. He's you know, created a calendar and so wow. forth. He's very familiar with these characters. So um, the book is very dense with illustrations, and that really makes it, I think, worth the purchase Great. for people who already have the works scattered across various sure. other volumes. Sure. Uh, at number six, we have Dashing Through the Snow by Debbie McComber. Uh, she is a perennial bestseller, and this is her Christmas romance for the year, uh, or her Christmas novel for the year, I should say. It's got a romantic thread, as many of her books do, but it also uh, focuses very much on one young woman's journey through trials to happiness, which is the tried and true Debbie McComber shtick, and uh, her fans love it. And does she have a Christmas novel every year? Is this? Uh, oh, I would guess she does. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a big time of year for her. She makes no secret about being a devout Christian, and um, it's right. it's an important part of her life. She doesn't like hammer at home. Her books are not what I would call Christian fiction, um, but certainly those inspirational messages will resonate a lot with a lot of her readers. Uh, and then from here on, it's basically all science fiction. Um, wow. And number 10, we have Shadows of Self by Brandon Sanderson, or I should say science fiction and fantasy. This is part of his uh, Mistborn Industrial Revolution fantasy series. I love that we're moving away from the medieval monarchy style of epic fantasy and getting into other eras within fantastical worlds. So um, in this particular case, uh, there's a lot going on with early industry, steampunk. Um, there, there, There's metal shaping magic uh, in the Mistborn universe. And uh, this is the fifth book in the series. It opens a new sub-series, so it's a good place for mm-hmm. readers to start. And uh, it's called Shadows of Self, and it's at number 10. At number 12, we have Saturn Run by John Sanford. Uh, this is his first science fiction novel, and for that, he's collaborate, collaborating with Katine, um, if you don't know how to spell it, C-T-E-I-N. Uh, he's a well-known science fiction art maker and photographer. Um, Sanford, uh, who's been our guest on the show, does a lot of thrillers, a very prolific author, and so they've collaborated here on a really interesting First Contacts uh, yarn. We gave it a starred review, and uh, said in this book, the Americans and the Chinese reenact the fable of the tortoise and the hare in a race to claim the richest scientific find in human history, namely an alien object that shows up in the solar system. Oh, wow. And uh, you know, I've I've, uh, I've had a chance to read this, and it's definitely a Sanford novel. Like you know, the dialogue is pure Sanford, right. the rhythm, the beats of it, but right. um, with a science fiction story instead of a more traditional kind of police procedural right. story. Right. Um, it's a boatload of fun oh, it's a, just a really really fun book it's a big book it's like a big hefty hardcover um but uh it's uh it's it's very enjoyable it'll be interesting to see how the two fan bases 
overlap right, for him. Right. Uh, at number 13, we have The Secret Chord uh, by Gerald and Brooks. That's chord C-H-O-R-D. I'm spelling things a lot today. And uh, in this case, um, the chord comes from a harp that is played by King David of the Bible. And uh, we say that her interest in religious commitment accrues rich rewards in this ambitious and psychologically astute novel about King David. And uh, it, it's the the religious aspects are very overt like there's no pretending that this is a pure historical novel um but uh, we say that tragic events provide plenty of melodrama and considerable suspense and while most of the plot is fictional conjecture she invokes time and place with keenly drawn detail uh with the verve of an adroit storyteller oh, so great. um that's uh, that's one for the historical fiction fans out there and also the religious fiction fans out there yeah and it's at number 12 at number 13, we have another starred review for another science fiction novel, Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits by David Wong, who's uh, probably best known as one of the minds behind Cracked.com. And uh, he's written a couple of other novels that uh, have been very popular. Uh, yeah, they, they have great titles. His first was John Dies at the End. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, and the second one was called This Book is Full of Spiders. No, seriously, man, don't touch it. <laughs> so, uh, futuristic violence and fancy suits. Uh, we say that Wong unabashedly trolls everyone and lampoons everything in this beautifully outrageous science fiction adventure, which is set in a near future U.S. that's even more narcissistic and technology obsessed than the present. And it follows typical down and out young woman with an absentee father who is unexpectedly sort of flung into the middle of a, a, a kind of competition for fame and fortune on the internet and uh, she has to stay alive uh, struggle to work out the mystery of her father's legacy oh and also save the world mm. and we say in our starred review that biting humor and blatant digs at modern society overlay a subtly brilliant and thoughtful plot focused on one young woman's growth and survival against all odds Great. so that's pretty uh, pretty intense and finally i just wanted to give a shout out to last week's guest adrian tomina uh, his killing yes. and dying is at number 47 oh, on our hardcover nice. fiction bestseller list so congratulations adrian very glad to see that there excellent i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio next up jenny lawson tells us how and why she wrote a funny book about horrible things we'll be right back Hi, I'm Adrian Tomina, the creator of Killing and Dying, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Jenny Lawson on the line. She is the bloggist, and her new book is Furiously Happy. Jenny, I'm so glad you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. So this is your second book, just came out. Uh, it looks like it's following the same trajectory as your first book, Let's Pretend This Never Happened, getting onto the bestseller list. Did you expect this to happen with either book? I, I was absolutely shocked with both. Um, with the first book, it debuted number one on the New York Times list the first week out, um, and I suspected I was in some sort of a coma. Uh, and I think I maybe have never woken up because I really was very worried that when this book came out, it would not, it wouldn't do as well because it is, it's still, it's a funny book and it still has the same humor. But when I decided to do a book about mental illness, I thought, 
okay, this is maybe going to have a very limited audience. Um, and I was shocked and, and still am shocked in a wonderful way that it's, it has done so well and is actually doing better than um, let's pretend uh, this never happened. So this book, the subtitle is A Funny Book About Horrible Things, <laughs> yeah, which is a great subtitle. Uh, um, tell us about, was this a natural next step for you? Or, or what made you decide, you know, as you just mentioned, that this one was focusing on mental Ill- illnesses? Or at least uh, you talked about mental illnesses a little bit more in this one. How, how did this book come about? Well, I... Um I had noticed that whenever I wrote about funny, ridiculous things, people loved it and would always say, oh, I've completely mortified myself in the exact same way. This is fantastic. Oh, I don't, I'd feel so much less alone. Uh, and the only time that I got an even better response was when I was honest about the fact that um, I struggle myself with depression and anxiety and all of these issues that so many of us deal with. Uh, and I, I was convinced, actually, by my editor and my agent that that would, be, would make a great book. And it took a lot of convincing before I finally said, okay, all right, maybe I can do this, maybe I can share this. Um, it actually, the, I would say the thing that pushed me the furthest was the fact that um, there are so many people who are alive today who um, have come to me and said, you know, I was actively in the process of planning my suicide and I decided not to, not because of anything I wrote, but because they saw me write about my personal struggle and they saw thousands of other people write in and say, me too, and I thought it was just me. And when, when you see that giant group of people saying, I thought I was the only one who felt like I was worthless, then you start to realize that depression does lie and that if everyone is feeling this way, then, then it's not actually true, that that's just something in your head. And so many people were able to go out and get help, which is such a, a fantastic and wonderful thing in many ways, including the fact that so many of the people who came out and, you know, left comments and said, I feel this way too, even if they just anonymously shouted it into the void, um, that that one person may have been that one comment that sent someone over the edge to say, okay, I'm going to get help, and that they're alive today because a stranger said, me too, you're not alone. So that's incredibly powerful, and it's one of the amazing things about blogging is that you can build up this kind of community in the comments section. But uh, books are different. You, know, you you kind of you read a book alone. You don't necessarily see what other people are saying in response to the book. The Amazon reviews may not be as personally revealing of people saying, "Oh, me too. I have this struggle too." So right. how how do you work with that with a book? I mean, you're you're doing a tour right now. Is that part of it? Connecting with people directly. Um, it is part of it. The tour really for me is more of a, almost a thank you to all the people who have supported the the book. Um, it's interesting with, especially with this book, it, it happened a bit with Let's Pretend This Never Happened, but it happens a lot with Furiously Happy, where um, the reason why somebody got it is because they're 
daughter read it and thought, oh my gosh, this explains me. This explains the good parts and the bad parts. There's someone else like me. And they would buy it and give it to you like their mom or their dad and say, read this and, and you'll understand me better. And so it's interesting how often there are people who are big fans of this book who don't know that I'm a blogger or who are like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to you know, check out. Did you have another book first? You know, and are just finding this as a sort of standalone and are now finding um, this community that also exists. So it's almost like a, like a bonus. Like they read the book and then, you know, they sort of go and then they find the blog and then they realize, oh, there's this entire community of people who are messed up in the same way that I am, who all wonder, like, why was Jesus not considered to be a zombie since he came back from the dead? And, like, all these, you know, ridiculous questions that are in your head, but you don't say them out loud because you know you're going to be judged. And suddenly you find each other and you realize, oh, we're completely not alone in being weird, wonderful misfits. So how is that existing community reacting to the influx of of book readers who are maybe coming in not knowing all the in-jokes about giant metal chickens and so forth? <laughs> they, uh, well, first of all, they're, they're very, very sharing, um, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, what is also really great is so many people who you know, either read the blog or, or they just read the books or just follow me on Twitter. You know, there's, there's all sorts of, of different kind of groups of people. And so often, especially like on Twitter, somebody will say something like, oh, I really want to go to, you know, Jenny's book reading in New York, but I, I have agoraphobia and I don't, don't like to leave the house and I'm really afraid. Is there anybody out there who's also going that wants to go with me? And then suddenly five people will be like, oh, I'm exactly the same way. You know, I don't have any friends here. It's a new town or I'm afraid of people. And they will meet up and become friends. Same thing with um, people as they are in line. So often you'll see people and they'll, you know, maybe start to get kind of panicky and everyone else will turn around and be like, would you like a clonopin? How about some Xanax? Here's some deep breathing <laughs> techniques. Um, and that's such a wonderful and fantastic thing. There are so many people who come out to the readings who just basically say, this is the first time that I have left my house in weeks other than, you know, just basic going to work. And, you know, I, I just could not make myself do this. And it's such a great first step because you know that every single person um, that's in line, that they're going to understand even the weirdest, strangest stuff they're going to get. And, that, and you look around the room and you see people and they're holding taxidermy and they're holding metal chickens to be signed and they're wearing pajamas or giant red ball gowns. And, and each person you look at and you're like, what's going on there? And they're so happy to tell their story. And they're so, because they, they realize that, they're with their their community or their tribe or they're like they've found people who understand and it's such a great way of of connecting and and also what's really great is that so much of of the uh of the book was written really with the help of the internet because every like i would go out like the the book is 90 percent you know probably even more than that, 95%, like, brand new stuff. But the entire time I was writing it, I would get online and say, like, 
I I'm I have nothing. Like I have nothing. I will never write again. Like I just I just can't. I can't do this. And they would push me through it, or I would struggle with like, well, what's the word that I'm looking for here that I don't know? And, and they'll say, oh, oh, there's not a word for that in English, but there is one in German. And they, and so so often. Um, I, I look at the book and I remember like, oh, here's where I was in my life when I was writing this. And here are the people who were helping me. And I don't know like who they really are. I just know like this is what they're, you know, they have like a dolphin as a picture on their Twitter account and that they were fantastic and helped me through it. So it's a nice thing. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own depression and, and anxiety that you write about. But I wanted to talk a little bit first about just some of the stories in the book, so some of the things you encounter, such as, I don't know, battling menacing swans. <laughs> Tell us about that. So, yeah. You know, everyone thinks that swans are like these like lovely little graceful. Like, they're just <laughs> the sweetest little things. They're not. They will kill you. They're worse than um, geese. <laughs> they're horrible, horrible beasts, and you should stay away from them. Um, we moved into this neighborhood, and it's this very posh Republican stronghold. I don't fit in well because I'm like everything that's the opposite of that. And uh, so, but, we, but it was a very safe neighborhood, and it had gates, and I was, I had like a stalker at the time and I thought this will be safe and this is good and so but in the there's like a pond in the middle of our neighborhood and they have these swans these two swans that live there and it's just and you look at it and it's picturesque and beautiful and um, those swans want you to die and apparently they only do it to me but anytime I'm anywhere near that pond those swans will come after me they will run down like as I'm driving by, they will, like, try to rip the bumper off my car. Those swans, they're total jerks. And um, I call them uh, Whitey and Klaus Banana Snatch. And, I, and I'm always, like, I roll down the window, and I'm like, not today, Whitey, which is a weird thing to say in this, like, you know, Republican country club neighborhood. Um, and everybody's kind of looking at me, and I'm like, yeah, you too. You too. I don't know. Whatever. I'm sure you did something wrong, too. Uh, so, yeah, but um, – and. And you know, I, I they were they actually chased me home at one point, and I was like, you know, oh, they're behind me, they're behind me. And Victor was like, I, my husband was like, what are you talking about? Who's behind you? And I told him, and he just thought I was insane. But then I reached up on the internet, and like one swan trying to drown a man, so and then another one like broke somebody's arm. You think they're sweet, and they are not. They are not to be trusted. I think that they are serial killers, and they're getting away with it because nobody suspects them. <laughs> and so you've also dressed, say, in a koala bear costume going on the animal theme um, on a trip to Australia. That is right. Um, you know, well, I always thought, because people always hold koalas in Australia, and I always thought, that's not really a very fair thing, because koalas never know, you know, what it's like to be held by another koala. I should dress like a koala, and then it's like they're getting cuddled by, like, their mom, because otherwise it's just like, <laughs> oh, what are you doing? Like, this feels a little like molestation. No means no. You didn't ask if you can touch me. But then I get to Australia, and I have my costume, and I've had it approved beforehand by, like, the, I don't know, people who protect koalas or whatever. And 
they were just like, oh, you can't, you can't actually hold them. You can't hold a koala. That's illegal. That's illegal to do. And I was like, oh, I've seen pictures of people do this. And they were like, oh, well, in another part of Australia, you know, where, where they don't protect the koalas. But then later, <laughs> then later I found out that the koalas, like, apparently tons of them have chlamydia. So I'm like, well, maybe they were trying to protect me from the chlamydia. But I'm pretty sure that chlamydia is fairly treatable in people so like I would have been willing to chance it I'm okay with you know getting a little bit of koala chlamydia that's I'm okay with that um, but apparently they were not and they would not so instead they were like well you can stand near the koala but it'll stress it out if you're if you touch it and everything and these, these koalas were like they were so fast asleep I'm almost positive they were dead like I'm 99% positive that they didn't have any live koalas and they just didn't want me to hold them because then I'd be like, oh, this koala has been dead a long time. <laughs> this is starting to sound like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> exactly. This parrot is dead. So did, did, they, did they warn you about the drop bears? Uh, they did. Uh, they did warn me about the drop bears. And so I was, um, I was prepared because... He, you know, we have um, snipes in uh, Texas. You go on a snipe hunt, and then, you know, once you get there, you realize, by the way, I'm spoiling it for everyone who's new to Texas, it's not a real thing, um, which is the same thing with drop bears. But then I get to Australia, and they're, like, at the, they have these flying foxes, which they're not foxes. They're enormous bats. They're so big, they look like foxes with wings. And, they're and like, every poisonous spider you could ever possible imagine and they're all just like you open up a drawer and they're like hey i'm hanging out here look at me i'm a snake like they have i'm like why are you making up bears australia you have everything that wants to kill you there already it was crazy we're gonna take a quick break but don't go away book lovers everywhere love publishers weekly radio now on iheartradio.com PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Jenny Lawson, the author of Furiously Happy. And uh, so you've got all these anecdotes of hilarious things um, with which all sound like they have this wonderful cartoon logic, you know, not I shouldn't hold a koala, but I should dress up in a costume to make the koala feel better. So how how does that tie into this particular book's treatment of things like mental illness and maybe more dangerous kinds of irrationality? Well, I had, um, several years ago, I had this sort of an epiphany. Um, I was dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety, and I had um, a couple of friends die, and I got really mad, um, mad about the fact that you have to deal with all of this horrificness when you're dealing with mental illness, and you're also having to deal with life and with the world, and I was just angry in general, and so I decided that I was going to be happy out of pure spite, that I would just say, I don't know what the universe is up to, but you know what, anytime I have the opportunity to, I'm going to say yes to things, and I'm going to be furiously happy. 
Um, and I was not able to be furiously happy right then at the moment because I had depression and you can't just decide, oh, I'll be happy because that's not how depression works. Right. Um, but what it did do is it convinced me to, on the, t- on the days when I was doing well and my head was in the right place and I had energy to take an extra step and do something really fun, really silly, really ridiculous. Because those memories that you have, those are what you take back with you when you're fighting again later, when you're fighting depression. Because then you know, you know what, right now my brain is telling me that I'm useless and that I'll never be happy again or I'll never feel emotions again or whatever it is it's saying. But I have in the back of my head these memories of jumping into fountains that you're not supposed to jump into or dressing up as a kangaroo to be a kangaroo better than a kangaroo out in the middle of Australia or whatever ridiculous, silly thing that I did. Um, So really, it's just a matter of because when you have depression, and I think some people might disagree with me, but whatever, in my personal experience, it's almost like if you're dealing with depression, you feel a sadness that is so much darker and more dramatic than the average person might ever have to deal with. But I would like to think that that also stretches us in a way so that we have the ability to feel joy in maybe a stronger way um, if we go out and look for it at times when we can. And I think it's, I, I, I have to be very, very clear on this because I think sometimes people hear this and if they don't understand depression, they're like, see, what she's saying is just be happy. And that's not what I'm saying because you can't just be happy when you're depressed. What I am saying is that, you know, with the right medicine and therapy and help and um, all that stuff that when you are out of a depression, you can have a wonderful, fantastic life. You just have to keep breathing through the bad points, knowing that one day soon you will be able to turn your hand at being seriously happy again. And I think that depression uh, in particular, people often feel like they can't express it Um, And that's actually a thing that it has in common with silliness is that these are both things that are sort of repressed in our culture. Like you're not supposed to wear a ball gown to somebody's book launch party or, you know, you're you're not supposed to admit that you're feeling this crushing weight of misery. Did you did you feel like giving yourself the permission to be silly made it easier for you to also be upfront with yourself and other people about being depressed? Absolutely. Um, it's, it not only was a great gift that I was sort of able to give myself to say, I'm going to give myself an excuse to do something ridiculous, which is wonderful because it's, it's something you have to practice. It's, it's not something that comes naturally. It's something you have to look at and say, what can I do today? Can I go, what if I go to the pound and I let all the kittens out and I just like sit in a room with all the kittens, you know, because you don't think about that stuff until you think, okay, let's think of something that will make me happy that I've never done before. Um, It was also extremely freeing in that I was able to put something into writing so that when somebody didn't understand, I could hand them the book and say, 
this is what it's like. It might not be what it's like for you. Everybody's, you know, you know, mental health is different, but this is what it's like for me. And this is why I am the way that I am. Um, one of the things that I did when the, like right before the book came out is I did this, um, where's Rory, uh, sort of thing, which was like a, a flat Stanley. Um, but so Rory is the, the taxidermy raccoon that's on the cover of the book. And so I was like, let's send out some Rory's because I am, you know, afraid of traveling. And when I do travel, I tend to just stay, I stay in my hotel room, which is where I am right now. Like I, I don't like to get out and I'm sort of afraid of people. And uh, so I was like, let's have Rory travel the world and let's just see where all Rory can go. Mm-hmm. And I thought I, it would be, you know, like pictures of Rory on like family vacations and this and that. But what it turned into, um, so many people were so happy to have an opportunity to say, you know what, I've always wanted to see the world's biggest ball of twine, but I've never had an excuse to, and it sounds so silly, but you know what, I'm going to go take Rory to the world's biggest ball of twine and take a picture so that he can be on the map. And now there's this giant map, and he's been to, like, just all around the world and all the different continents and to just the, the strangest, weirdest places. And so often I get these emails from people who said, I would never have gone on this ridiculous road trip to take pictures of him in the strangest, weirdest places, but it ended up being such a great experience. And it's one that I would not have done had I not had the excuse to do something silly. So I think that's a, a wonderful practice. So, uh, how do you find the balance to write humorously about horrible things? Uh, is this something that you that just comes naturally, or do you, I don't know, try things out, write things, and see how they might work? Read it aloud, perhaps like a stand-up comic might. I um I also when I write, first of all, I immediately I immediately delete half of everything that I write because. I always write too much. It's hard to believe that I delete half of it because there's so much like weird, random stream of consciousness that you should see it before it even gets halfway deleted. Um, then after that, I will um, kind of look at it and be like, is this a blog post or is it more of a book chapter? Um, I constantly have napkins that I'm writing on. I'm writing all over my hands. I'm writing on anything all the time, just like simple words or a sentence. Um, And then sometimes I will go weeks where nothing comes and I just sit there and I think I will never write again. I am, I'm an imposter. I, I'm not a a writer and, um, and I'll just, I'll be so distraught and upset. And then all of a sudden something will click Something will happen, I'll hear a word or a phrase, and all of a sudden it will just snap. And I, I basically like put a little sign up on my desk that says, do not talk to me for the next 30 minutes, and I just type as fast as I can to try to get it out because I know if I don't finish it, if I get distracted, I'm not going to be able to finish it and it, and it won't be done. Um, but, it, but it is interesting, you know, my first book took me 10 years to write, and this mm. book took me four years to write. So I think it's easy to look at the book and be like, oh, she's always doing stuff, and oh, she's all like, she's, oh, she's got such a lot of stuff going on. But really, it was, it's not unusual for me to, if I get a couple of pages done 
in a week, I feel like, oh, that was a really successful week. There's a lot of of downtime and a lot of time when I'm just like, oh, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. But in the end, it, it works out, and I'm so lucky. I have like a really great editor. I have a really great um, agent. They both listen to me. And then also, I think having readers is really helpful. So I have five friends who I can call at 3 o'clock in the morning and say, is, is this funny or is it ridiculous? And is this over the line? Is this going to make people mad or is this? And having them there to say, yes, it's too far or you know what? It's going to make people talk or, oh, my God, I've, I never understood it in that way um, is wonderful. It's also great because, you know, you have five people. One of them's not going to like it. And that's it's going to be the same way with with any book. I mean, if you write it like this this book, any book, it's not for everyone. And if I get like a you know a Amazon, I look and I just look, look every once in a while. And I'm like, oh okay, it's I don't know four and a half stars. That's great. But I know there's a there's a lot of one star reviews of people who are like, how dare you use this profanity or you know what's you're going to go to hell for saying the things that you say and. And I always just have to say, like, well, it's, I mean, it's not for everybody. It's going to find the people who need it and who it resonates with. And um, and those are the people that, you know, kind of hold up the book. And those are the people that I want to read it. So the, the book finds its audience. And I'm so, so lucky that I have this great community of people who some don't even realize they're in the community until they suddenly realize that they have been really the entire time um that 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 really is kind of how this comes about is almost it's really almost is more word of mouth and it's interesting when we whenever i do book signings because so often somebody will come and they'll say i came because my friend here she sent me your first book and then we would read it back and forth to each other and we would laugh and we call each other on the phone and we send each other you know, pictures of this and that, and now, you know, we're here, and and it's almost like a, a contagion, but, but a good one, like, it's, mm-hmm. like, it's a good disease, that's, that's, my writing is a good disease, that's the way I, like, like chlamydia for koalas. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your husband and your daughter, uh, your husband who um, seems to be supportive and goes along with a lot of your ideas. And then your, your daughter, are, are there things that um, you, you, you won't write about? I mean, because they, they are there with you on, uh, on page. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There um you know, with the with the first book and with this book, um, everybody who was in the book, they got to read uh, anything that had to do with them, and um, they. I just basically told them, if there's anything that you want removed, you don't even have to give me a reason. I'll just take it out. Like anything that makes you uncomfortable. And to their great credit, not only did they not say. Um, take this out. Instead, they were like, oh, do you need pictures of the raccoon that used to live in our bathtub that was like wearing shorts? Oh, I can give you that. Do you need a picture of your dad's, you know, armadillo state champion racing ring? Do you like, so, so instead there was that. Um, When it comes to Victor and Haley, so Victor is both a saint and also a complete 
I probably can't say the word on the radio, um, but just the opposite of the same. Uh, which actually worked really well because if he was really a saint, I would feel guilty for being with him. But instead, I'm like, well, yeah, I I put up with a lot of stuff for you, too. Um, He's really, really funny, though. In real life, he's actually much funnier. I'm funny on the page, but he's the funny one in our relationship, So, which is what has kept us, I think, together for 20 years. Um, Mm. We do have rules. my own personal rule, first of all, is that um, whatever I'm writing about, I have to be the biggest butt of the joke. When it comes to Victor and I, I never write about anything that we are currently still fighting about. Uh, it has to be something that has already passed enough that we can laugh about it. With Haley, I never write anything that I think a mean 14-year-old girl can one day use against her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that holds back a lot. Uh, so so much so that at a certain point, some people are like, do, oh, wait, you have a kid? Do you have a kid? I'm like, no, I do. I do. I'm just I'm kind of quiet about her. Um, she's 11 now. So she is at the age where if I'm going to share something about her, I'll read it to her first. I don't let her read it because I take out all the curse words and stuff, and I don't, you know. <laughs> but I'll read it, and I'll be like, are you okay with this? And there are sometimes things that I think are so funny, and she's like, mm, nope. I don't want you to share it. And so I don't. Um, and that has been, I think, a really, a really helpful thing because we're all sort of on the same team. And she's now getting old enough where she's starting to understand really what I'm writing about, which is both wonderful and also a little bit frightening. Because, you know, you, you don't really want to think about your mom as struggling with mental illness and all of that. And so she's getting to that age where she's starting to see, oh, so those, those weeks when my mom's in, you know, in bed and all she can do is just snuggle me and watch TV and she can't do anything else, that that's not just she's sick, that it's a different kind of sickness. We've been talking with Jenny Lawson, and you can find her book Furiously Happy in stores right now. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit more about your amazing life. Sure, thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal brings us the news from the Frankfurt Book Fair. Stay tuned. I'm Buzz Bissinger, the author of Friday Night Lights, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us all about what's happening at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Hello, Rachel. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. So, um, this is this is this is when it happens. All the big deals. This is when all the buzz starts happening. What what can you tell us about? Has there been a uh, big book or, or a few big books that you've been hearing about? Um, yeah, it's been an interesting fair. You know, Frankfurt is the biggest um, annual rights fair on the calendar, uh, bigger than London later in the year, and then Bologna, which is dedicated to children. Um, and you know, usually I think uh, people are going into the fair. Um, certainly me as somebody who's covering it, looking for what's that one big book um, everybody's talking about. And, you know, people always sort of say, um, I don't know, looking for a big book of the fair is kind of like looking for a white whale. I, I, it's hard to know if they really exist. Do, do people talk them up? 
Um, you know, certainly this year there there wasn't one big book, um, and that always I think um, it makes it makes for unusual fare. I mean, I think it means you know there's not one thing everybody's talking about either. Sort of saying, do you think this book is really going to be as big as you know whoever paid lots of money for it thinks it's going to be. Um, you know, and it means that um, people are talking about lots of different books, and that was certainly the case this year. Um, wasn't to say that there weren't some books that were bought for quite a lot of money. It's just that, for whatever reason, um, those books were not ones that people were sort of talking about consistently throughout um, the fair. So um, a couple of the big books that... Um, that were acquired in the U.S. before the fair. Um, we actually we, we covered um, from some dispatches uh, here in Germany, and then we also covered some last week. Uh, one was a debut novel, which uh, my Viv Dutton bought by um, a Canadian screenwriter called All Our Wrong Todays. Um, mm-hmm. And then another big book here was a book called the Bumper Book of Eleanor Oliphant. It's, uh, it's another novel and um, another debut novel, I should say. And um, it was acquired in a big deal right before the fair by uh, Pamela Dorman, who has an eponymous imprint at Penguin. And um, both this book and uh, the other book I mentioned, um, which Maya Ziv acquired, they were both bought in rumored seven-figure deals. Um, so... Um, you know, wow. so that obviously is one thing that signifies um, the publishers are very confident about, you know, um, their appeal. And, and both those books, um, as it happens, were acquired in North American rights deals, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is also something to note. You know, that's that's been um, something to watch at these fairs. You know, obviously... Um, Publishers would prefer to acquire more rights, especially if they're spending that much money. Um, you know, the the, the optimal uh, deal being one for world rights, because then it means the publisher can sell off rights to um, other publishers, to foreign publishers, and and make money um, in that way. Aside from just making money, you know, from sales of the book. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, the fact that these books were acquired in such big deals um, and the publishers didn't acquire world rights is definitely something, um, you know, to watch. Uh, You know, does it signify that it's getting harder for publishers to get the books that everybody seems to want? I mean, that may be be the case. And, you know, it seems to be something where if an agent has something that everybody is really going after that, um, you know, they are able to negotiate and and hold on to more, more rights. So then would they at Frankfurt be negotiating now for the uh, world rights for those books then? Well, what happens is um, if if a publisher buys world rights, then they will take the book to the fair um, and they will then sell those rights themselves. So, you know, you if you're a big publisher, like a Penguin Random House, you have a huge foreign rights department and mm-hmm. you would have somebody who then would be working to sell that book to foreign publishers. The difference is if you are an agent um, and you are able to make a big deal, but you retain foreign rights, um, mm-hmm. then you would come to Frankfurt and either you might have an agency where you have a foreign rights person who would be selling it, or you know you yourself would be sort of handling those other deals and then making the foreign deals yourself. So 
it's just a switch. Whereas, um, whether the publisher is going to be doing it, um, or whether the agent is going to be doing it. And it's something that, um, you know, it's still, whether the agent is doing it or the publisher, you know, um, doesn't sort of, is just, it's just determined by the nature of the deal. Yeah, right. So, so it seems like, like Frankfurt is is really big for for fiction, say more so than nonfiction. Uh, have you though? Have you heard of any anything any nonfiction deals that are going on? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny you say that. I mean, I think um, one thing that's interesting about Frankfurt, and one thing that sort of drives the quote unquote big deals, is that. Um, I think because of the nature of the industry and, and people say, you know, oftentimes um, so many people get into this industry because they're drawn to literary fiction. You know, that, that tends to be the kind of high watermark of of what people think um, is, quote unquote, important in the business. Um, and I think for that reason, a lot of the books that are perceived as big, sometimes a lot of the books that people talk about often fall into the literary fiction category. Um but that's not to say that um, nonfiction books aren't selling for huge amounts of money here, and there were some really big nonfiction deals. Um, and it's also not to say that there aren't lots of books that are not literary fiction, which are selling for a lot of money. I think mm-hmm. often people just aren't talking about those um, because, you know, I think, as I said, it's just not maybe the sexiest part of the business. But on the nonfiction front, um, you know, there were... This year, um, one big nonfiction book that we covered uh, is a new project that Douglas Preston um, is writing, and it's based on a, an article that he wrote for National Geographic um, about an expedition to um, that uncovered an ancient city. And that book sold in a seven-figure deal uh, before the fair to Grand Central. Um, so that was a big nonfiction book. Um, and there were certainly there were other big nonfiction books. Um, again, I think part of the thing that drives sort of conversation at the fair and that can designate a book as big are sort of certain um, certain things, maybe about the author or the nature of the deal. And usually, it tends to be debuts. Um, I think that's one reason that maybe nonfiction doesn't sort of draw the buzz. Is, when there's a debut novel that sells, I think, you know, a lot of what people are talking about is sort of the introduction of a, you know, of a potentially, um, of, a, of a new sort of potentially big author. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes with nonfiction, um, you know, especially if you have stuff that's more, um, that's not narrative nonfiction, you know, you might be dealing with a book where you have, um, you know, whether it's by a doctor or whether it's by um, you know, sort of a professor or something like that, you know, it might be a one-off thing or it might not necessarily be the kind of thing where this is the start of a new literary career as opposed to, you know, this is somebody who's doing um, important work or this is somebody who's doing work that people are paying attention to and they've right. now sold a, a big book. Right. Um, right. But, I mean, another another really interesting thing, I think, is that there are lots of big deals um, for really established authors that happen around the fair. And that's also something that um, people tend to not pay as much attention to only because it's not that interesting when somebody who is, 
a um, an established success makes a really big deal, you know, um, for a book or, you know, for a multi-book deal or something like that. Um, I think that's something that, um, you know, those deals, they're, they're big name authors who are getting, um, you know, significant, significant advances for multi-book deals. It's just not something that people say, you know, that are talking about because I guess it's not that surprising. Got it. So what has been the field, uh, like the general field of the, uh, of the show? I mean, uh, one of excitement or kind of low grade or what? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, it's been, I think because there's no one book everybody's talking about, there are lots and lots of books everybody's right. talking about, which makes it, um, which makes it sort of tricky to, to focus on any one thing. Um, right. So, you know, depending on who you talk to, um, I think some people think it's a sign that there's a lot of good stuff and other sure. people have said they think it's a sign that there's really not enough good stuff because there's not any one thing that everybody is excited about. So, you know, it, it depends. I mean, there were, there were just a lot of books that were being bought. Um, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if, um, if the fact that, that everything is sort of, um, that not enough things are standing out from the pack, at least, you know, in terms of the chatter is a sign of anything, or if it's a sign that, you know, as some people have said that it's just a weaker crop of books this year. Um, so that's, that's sort of tough to say. And I know it's not necessarily your bailiwick, but, but it seems to be in Frankfurt that, that there's been a lot of other, other events and non-traditional books sold. I mean, there's been maybe graphic novels and maybe some kids' books. I don't know if you uh, have, have been hearing much of that. I'm thinking more of the graphic novels. I don't know if that is something that's big at Frankfurt. Um, not specifically. I mean, I think anything can be big at, you know, yeah. at any of these fairs. Um, so I don't, I don't think... I mean, despite what I said, that um, that people that the big books tend to be the um, the literary debut novels. I mean, classically, that's that's what has come out. You know, if you if you want to point to sort of um, sort of standalone books that people are talking about, um, right. that tends to be what people at these fairs sort of um, lean lean to in terms of being attracted to that said there's, I mean, you know, there are years when it, it, you know, it could be a really big nonfiction book. It could be a graphic novel. Um, you know, Bologna is dedicated to kids, but there's certainly always, um, big children, especially more YA, I'd say in middle grade projects. Um, right. you know, there was a, there was a project that sold before the fair, um, that the Salamonson agency represents. Um, and that was a, a middle grade series. Um, the Salamonson agency is a big uh, Scandinavian literary agency. Um, and th- that series sold, um, it was optioned by the director who made the imitation game. So that was, um, a really big deal. It was sort of, um, pitched as a kind of a Harry Potter esque series, but with code breaking. Um, so, you know, that's something that definitely obviously had people talking here. So, I mean, even though there are, even though these fairs, I think people tend to um, to want to sort of talk about the big literary book. You never know what what could be something that's going to break out at the fair. Or be really big. Thank you so much for calling us from Germany. We really appreciate it, and it's great to get your perspective on the fair. I hope the rest of it goes really well. All right. Thanks so much.
Always great to have you on the show. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Ursula Vernon, author of Harriet the Invincible, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fantastic author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 